you guys want to join me here? Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Um, I've got a red light. There we go. Good to see you today. Thank you for helping out. Um, you all probably know uh, Scott and Kathy uh, better than I do. We had a chance to have lunch this week and, and talk, and it was so cool to hear about what God is doing uh, through them with Pioneer Bible Translators. So just kind of want to visit with you guys for a second before we take up our offering. Um, would you, both of you work for, for Pioneer, would you each tell us what you do with them? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Is it on? One of the, <laughs> check, 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 check. Sure. <laughs> I would be delighted to. <laughs> uh, my role in Pioneer Bible Translators uh, is actually one that, that encompasses uh, overseeing 425 people in 15 countries. Uh, we have translation work, church planning, community development projects all across the globe, and uh, the, the challenge before us is, is tending well to that, and it's my responsibility to make sure our missionaries are, are strong, uh, vibrant, encouraged, and when they're not, uh, those are the kinds of things that I help them navigate, figure out ways to stay in the ministry, to stay strong, so that we do see uh, networks of churches using scripture to grow and multiply. It's a, it's a daunting big job, but it's also an exhilarating one. We're seeing great fruit in. Yeah, Kathy, what do you do? Sure, I am the director of media arts and communications at Pioneer Bible Translators, and we get to tell the story of the Bibleist people and those who are reaching them through all kinds of media, um, in ways that invite participation by prayer or financial support or joining our team and coming alongside and helping in the work. Mm, cool. So Scott, just kind of for, for those that don't know, just describe the process of Bible translation. I mean, we we we've grown so accustomed, or, or Kathy, whoever, uh, to you know to do that. Just um, what's that look like? What's that involve? Got to let you in on a little secret. It's kind of a long process. Mm -hmm. um, it can take between three, I'm sorry, between nine and 30 plus years, depending on a given situation. But we always begin with language survey. So we go in and determine if a, a, a language is thriving and needs a Bible translation, or if the language is dying and their needs can be met um, through a different translation that's already been done. And then if a Bible if they need a Bible translation, at that point we send a team in to begin language learning. Um, you never really fully learn a language, but um, it can, this beginning phase can take between two and four years, and um, that can be rather complicated if the language has never been written down before and you have to develop an orthography or alphabet. Um, but then after that phase, we start Bible translation and literacy. Um, most of these societies are oral, so they need to learn how to read um, Bible translation. Uh, we go back to Greek and Hebrew and determine a meaning-based verse-by-verse um, -verse version of the scriptures for the, the people, and we're working with them throughout the entire process, um, which also can be complicated because sometimes there is no um, word for grace or the concept of grace and redemption is very difficult for people to grasp um, a lot of times. So <laughs> at the same time, we're teaching people how to read. And once we have some readers, we try and teach those readers how to teach others to read so that the literacy efforts can multiply through the entire Bible translation process. And whenever books of the Bible become available, we can begin working with the people, discipling them and reading. And while those things are happening, we're also working with the local church, if there's one in existence, to begin discipling and using the Bible as it's becoming available and 
working with them to plant other churches. If there's no church in existence, we work with scripture impact initiatives, oral Bible storying, or listening and discussion groups centered around the scriptures so that when we have a completed translation of the Bible that has been consultant checked and, and ready for publication, we have churches using scripture um, to plant other churches and our missionaries can leave and the church still thrives. So you can see why it takes a decade uh, minimum uh, to get that done. Yeah. Scott, what's one really cool God story that has happened with Pioneer that you could tell us about? One of the things we'd like to see is, uh, is even our, our vision statement is transformed lives through God's word in every language. So we want to see that life transformation. And we want to see it here at Chapel Rock. We want to see it across the globe. And one of the things that, that uh, just a, a story from, from not that long ago, uh, some of our missionaries working in West Africa in a, in a, in a country that's really uh, uh, dangerous to work in sometimes. Um, these people have been in a village for a long time. They learned the language. They started to do Bible translation, uh, but they weren't making much progress. Um, uh, no churches were starting. It was just very fledgling. And uh, they came home one day to their village, and their house was on fire. Uh, they have a thatched roof house. Uh, the village, other, other houses had caught fire. Embers blew over. Their whole home was engulfed in flames. And moments later, all they could do is just watch it burn to the ground. And they were left with a quandary. Do we quit? Is this it? Is this a time to, to just pack it in and go home? So they came back to the States. And people like these are the ones that end up in, in my office that we try to navigate this and figure this complex thing out and answer the why questions and what is in the future. And um, these missionaries, through a lot of counsel from the Holy Spirit, decided we are not going to shrink back. <laughs> We're going to step right back into that situation. So they went back. The moment that their vehicle rolled into that village, hundreds and hundreds of people surrounded them. And the leader of the village came and he said, why did you come back? We never thought we would see you again. Why have you returned? In that very moment, they were able to say, because of the love of Jesus compelled us to. Hmm. And since that time, in these last three years, we have seen not just two, not just four, not just six, seven churches that have been planted all throughout the territory where these people speak this language and the Bible translation is moving and thriving. So out of hardship, yeah. often it's born amazing things. Praise God. That's awesome. What can we be praying for uh, for you guys? We have four teenagers in our home right now <laughs> and a fifth grader. You can be praying for us that we, that we continue to raise them well and that our family can continue to thrive in the midst of ministry. Yeah, I'll just add, add one, one big thing to that. With our growth, with 425 people in 15 countries, uh, we're hoping to add another 130 people in this next year or so uh, around the world. Um, for me, in my role, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of complexity to that and a lot of weight to that. It's a joy, um, uh, and, uh, but it's also the kind of thing that I need, I need help. So my prayer is that you all would pray that God would send someone who, who is like me to come and work alongside me to, to share this, these burdens and to, to keep moving this ministry forward because uh, we're at that place where, where with much growth comes need for more people. So that's a, that's a huge prayer need. Awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. God, we're grateful um, that we live here. We're especially mindful, Lord, as uh, Scott and Kathy have told us about the uh, process of uh, receiving a translation of the Bible in a language, the heart language of the people that We've had ours for so long, God, and um, the blessings that have come with that and the ability to study uh, your word um, in, in the language that we speak in our homes is just is huge, 
And so we want to thank you for that. We want to praise you for that. We want to thank you for the work of, of Pioneer Bible Translators um, and ask you to bless their work around the world. And specifically, God, uh, we want you to ask, uh, we want to ask you to bless uh, Scott and Kathy and their work uh, for caring um, for these missionaries, these uh, pioneers uh, in moving uh, the gospel out into the world and in communicating that story. God, we pray specifically for another helper, uh, a man uh, or a woman like Scott to come along and, and work alongside him uh, and also Lord with Kathy as she uh, raises their four teenage kids and, and uh, gets to tell these great stories about people. God, we love you and we thank you and thank you for the partnership in the gospel that Chapel Rock has with PBT. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and receive the offering. Thanks, guys. Would you express your appreciation to them for that? A couple, uh, while the uh, ushers are taking up the offering, a couple of things we want to make you aware of. Uh, men, just a reminder, the pastor's Bible studies this coming Saturday. Uh, we'll eat at 7.30, and we'll get started with the teaching uh, at 8 o'clock. So that's uh, Saturday, February 4th. Uh, also... Um, next, starting next Sunday, uh, in the parlor at 8.15 and 9.15, Fred is going to be teaching his new class, What Every Christian Needs or Ought to Know. Uh, and so, uh, that's 8.15, 9.15, next Sunday in the parlor. If you're not part of a Sunday morning group, uh, if you're not part of a life group, this would be a great way to kind of stick your big toe in the water, you know? Uh, you could you check this out, come to the class, meet some folks, a uh, great way to get involved in a church this large. Also, one other thing that we want to make you aware of, uh, after 20 years of service here at Chapel Rock as our financial administrator, uh, Debbie McLeod is retiring in about a month. She wants to spend more time with Larry or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, we want to commend uh, her faithful and diligent service here for 20 years. Would you, I don't know if she is in here or not, but would you please express your appreciation there? Uh, we will be hiring her successor soon, uh, and if that's something that you're interested in, uh, you need to send an email to info at chapelrock.org sometime before noon on February 10th, uh, expressing your interest. We will respond to that email uh, with, uh, with a packet of stuff that you'll need to do to apply uh, for that position. Uh, so we're, we're excited about what God is doing here. Uh, sorry to see Debbie go, but uh, eager for her to, she's going to continue to help out and stuff, but uh, eager for her to begin this new uh, phase in her life. Um, I want you to watch this, and then we'll get going. Watch. Because you've got different types of Christians. This is what I found out. You've got Christians who are cool. You can hang around with them. Iron sharpen iron relationships, right? And you've got Christians who may have a little limp in their walk. They got the hat on, but the shoes don't match. <laughs> then you got Christians who, I'm just going to put this out there. You ever know somebody that was oversaved? <laughs> don't look at them. Don't look at them. <laughs> you can't even have a regular conversation with them. He's like, hey, man, I'm thirsty. You thirsty? Thirsty for the Lord. Thirsty for the Lord. Hey, I lost my keys. Could you help me find my keys? You need the keys to the kingdom. My like, yeah, I didn't drive a kingdom. Yeah. I drove a Toyota. I know as soon as I said oversaved, some of y'all had somebody in mind, but if you didn't, somebody had you in mind. 
You could be oversaved. You ain't know it. Now I got to let you know that you're oversaved. A couple indicators to let you know you're oversaved. Just a couple indicators. Um, if you don't mess around with computers because they got a cursor. I'm sorry. If you rebuke vacuum cleaners because it's a dirt devil. I got an aunt that's oversaved. She messes up television shows for us. We're watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition. The beginning of the show, they always tell you the sad story about the people. My aunt gonna start praying for them. Lord, help them get a new house, Lord. Just. <laughs> they gonna get a new house. They gonna get a new house. She's like, yes, you gotta believe. I'm like. Now you gotta have cable, is what you gotta do. <laughs> do, you, do you ever wonder if Jesus felt the same way about the Pharisees? You know, that he, he, he felt that way, that, you know, he, I wonder if Jesus ever walked away from a meeting with the Pharisees and he was like, you guys, this is not complicated. Love God, love neighbor. I can't make it any simpler. You know, I mean, do you, you think he ever felt like that? He's like, Quit being so oversaved. I know the Pharisees weren't really saved until after the resurrection. There's a passage in Acts that says lots of the Pharisees converted. But sometimes they sure acted like oversaved Christians that I've met over the years. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Luke 11.37. Luke 11.37 is where we're going to be today. We're concluding our sermon series called Jesus is for Everyone this morning with the idea that Jesus is for hypocrites. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, for those of you joining us online, I'm also thankful that you're there. Uh, we're glad that you're part of uh, this ministry. We're excited about what God is doing there. Uh, if you're local, we'd love to see you on site uh, one Sunday. And if you have a question or something as you're watching this uh, or have a, make a decision following our, our uh, message this morning, just type that in the chat box and one of our pastors here will be in touch with you this week. Uh, we're excited about how God is, is moving in our church um, in these coming days. I'm really glad that you're here today because you need to hear this message. <laughs> I need to hear this message. We need to hear this message because everybody is a hypocrite. Everyone is. Everyone is guilty of hypocrisy at some point in their life. There's been at least one moment in your life when, when what you said was different than what you did. You've all done it. Everybody's done this. All right? Or maybe there's one area of your life where you're consistently a hypocrite. There's one area of your life that you just can't seem to reconcile what you say or what you're about with what you actually do. We're all guilty of this, and, and the essence of hypocrisy is presenting one image on the outside that's different from what's on the inside, and the only person who never did that was Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone else is guilty of this, at least in some way. Let me, let me define this a little more carefully. In the text, what we're going to see today is a kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about, and it is a deep-rooted, systemic sickness of the soul. The kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is going to talk about today is a deep-rooted, systemic sickness of the soul. I don't know if you happened to catch the news yesterday. The Pope recently made a statement about refugees and all that stuff, and he said for Christians to not at least care about their plight is, is hypocrisy. You're sick. You're not well. 
And, and he, what Jesus is saying here is the same thing, that, that to have a, a hypocrisy in your heart, in your life, is a deep-rooted sickness of the soul. Now, there are different kinds of hypocrisy, okay? Let me give you a couple examples. If you are publicly rooting for the Falcons to win the Super Bowl, but you secretly want the Patriots to win, that's kind of hypocrisy, a little bit. I don't think it's the kind that God is really worried about or cares much about, but it kind of is. Let me give you another example. If you voted, ready? If you voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, but told all your friends that you went third party or wrote somebody in, that's hypocrisy too. And I'm not sure how much God cares about that, except that you lied to your friends. So you know God cares about that. See, Jesus is talking about something more toxic here. He's going to speak to the issue of hypocrisy. And you should know Jesus only talks about the things he cares about. <laughs> so do not, before, just as we begin, do not think, well, Jesus doesn't really care about my little hypocrisies and idiosyncrasies. No, he cares. <laughs> he only talks about stuff he cares about. And here's the thing that might shock you. Jesus really loved these guys. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He spent time with them. He didn't have to. He went to their house for dinner, as we're going to see in the text. He didn't have to. He loved these people, mostly men. He loved these men. He cared about them. You know why? Because <laughs> Jesus loves everyone, including hypocrites like you and me. Jesus is for hypocrites, and, and we need him because he's the only cure for our hypocrisy. Jesus can lead us out of our hypocrisy into being whole. That's the big idea this morning. Jesus wants to lead hypocrites into wholeness. Wholeness is the opposite of hypocrisy. It's caring more about what's right than about your rights. Wholeness is being the same person all the time. Another word for that is integrity. Wholeness is, is being honest about your failures, but moving away from them. That's what Jesus wants to lead us into. So how does he do that? Well, I think this text orbits around a cluster of three ways that he, he leads us out of hypocrisy into wholeness. So as we read the text here in a little while, I want you to look for the three methods that Jesus uses to lead hypocrisy into wholeness. Before we do that, though, I want to kind of frame the text for you this morning. In Luke, this comes after, in Luke 9.52, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So in, in Luke 9.52, it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He turned his face toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to die. He is on his way to give his life as a ransom. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He's, he's on his way to do that. This happens after that. So even though we're a little bit, um, right, kind of right about halfway through the book, we're really more than halfway through Jesus' ministry. In Luke's gospel, then, everything becomes focused on the cross. And Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees intensifies. In Luke's gospel, this comes right when Jesus is at the height of his popularity with the crowds. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming to hear him preach, teach. Now that said, there are significant parallels in this passage with what we read in Matthew in chapter 15 and chapter 23 and in Mark in chapter 7 and chapter 12. 
though in the narrative flow of those Gospels, this event takes place in a different spot in the book. Let me chart this out for you. Matthew puts what Jesus is going to say here in Luke 11 in chapter 23, pretty much in the final week of Jesus' life. He gives this teaching at the temple, as far as we can tell, okay? Um, but the narrative of Jesus having dinner at a Pharisee's house is located in Matthew 15. Matthew breaks the two events, okay, because it fits his theme. Mark includes the story about the dinner in chapter 7, and then some, not all, of this teaching in chapter 12, because Mark's pretty short and punchy, and he just gets right to the point. We're going to look at Mark here in a couple months. So I was so like, what in the world's going on? Why do they mix it up? Here's what I think happened. I think Luke is telling the story in the way in which it happened. He was very concerned to do that. To, I'm going to lay this out in order in the way it happened. Matthew and Mark include the story about the dinner early because it kind of fits that theme there. But then the teaching they move later because it fits their theme of the cross. They, they break the story. Luke is telling it as it happened. Matthew includes a little extra, a few extra things that Luke doesn't add. We'll talk about that in a bit. But So th that's where we are here, okay? That's, that's where we're landing today for the text. Let's look at this together. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. This is not a hurried meal. They're sitting down, they're enjoying dinner together. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the, Pharisee, or then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, the tithe, without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. <laughs> Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions. The word there means to watch his mouth. They're firing questions at him and they're watching his mouth to catch him in a lie, to catch him in a hypocrisy. Verse 54, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees 
which is hypocrisy. Do you hear the love there? Inasmuch, he had, yes, he had conflict with these people, but he loved them. <laughs> There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So how does Jesus lead hypocrites into wholeness? I think the text lays out three ways. Here's the first one, number one. He leads them from legalism to justice. He leads them from legalism to justice. This first cluster of ideas is focused on the idea that in order to make someone whole, Jesus leads them out of legalism and toward a true form of justice. We see this in the way that Jesus reacts to the surprise of the Pharisee, who's his host for dinner, at the fact that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Now, before you think, well, that's gross. Mom said you're always always supposed to wash your hands. Mom said. Um, you need to understand that this Pharisee is reacting to the fact that Jesus did not do the formal ritual washing that the Pharisees had made equal to the law, even though it's not commanded anywhere in the law of Moses. Some, some have said that they would take half an eggshell's worth of water and pour it over their fingertips and let it run down past their wrist, and then it was ritually clean. Okay, (laughs) that was their tradition. It wasn't anywhere in the law. Nowhere in the law was it required to wash your hands before you eat. And, And here's what's happening here. This guy is stunned that Jesus didn't do that. The word translated surprised in verse 38 is the normal word for amazed. He's shocked that Jesus didn't observe this tradition that's nowhere in the law. And so Jesus did just lays into these guys. And I, we know that this one Pharisee is not the only one there. There are others there at the meal. He lays into them about what real cleanliness and dirtiness before God are all about. And if you want to see more of that context, go back to Matthew 15, the parallel to this, this event. Jesus points out the hypocrisy of being more concerned. Listen to me. Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy of being more concerned that someone didn't wash their hands before they eat the right way than that there are people in their community who don't have enough to eat, period. That's the, the fundamental hypocrisy there is they're so worried about, he didn't wash his hands right. Like, dude, there are people starving in your town. I think that's what Jesus said. I think he said, dude. <laughs> um, you see, Jesus is telling them how to get clean, and he says this is bigger than just um, you know, being, trying to be the same person all the time. It's about pushing back on the desires that lead to hypocrisy. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that the way to fight legalism in your life is to pursue justice, and you do it not because it makes you feel good or because you feel like you have a right to something, but because it's what Jesus would do. This is the work of grace in your life. When you understand grace, when you've experienced grace, it will make you want to pursue justice. When you've experienced God's grace and and mercy poured out on you, it will make you want to make sure that the society experiences that and is able to live in that blessing all the time. See, related to this issue of legalism, Jesus also talks about tithing in verse 42. Did you catch that? He says, woe to you, you give a tenth of all your garden herbs, but you neglect the greater matters like justice and the love of God. And I love this verse, and the parallel to it is Matthew 23, 23, where he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. (laughs) 
And when Jesus said that, I think he put his stamp of approval on the practice of tithing. Now, let's be clear about what this is, okay? A biblical tithe is the first 10% of your gross pay. This is before taxes. This is not take-home. This is the, the total package, okay? Anything less than that in the Bible is technically called an offering. And both are valued by God. Both are, are called blessed in the Bible. But let's be clear about our terms. And I want to challenge you this morning, if this is something that God has been chewing on you about, to, to maybe take the next step in that. So if, if you've been giving an offering, think about what it looks like to give a tithe. 10% off the gross. Before Uncle Sam gets his cut, God gets his. Okay? If you've been tithing faithfully, think about what it might look like to give a tithe and an offering. To, to hit that level of, of sacrifice where, like, we're going to feel this. <laughs> we're going to feel it. You see, the Pharisees, the Pharisees tithe out of obligation. But what Jesus is saying here is, don't do it out of obligation. Do it because it's a good thing, but don't neglect the greater matters of loving who God loves <laughs> and pursuing justice in society. They tithe out of obligation. Jesus says they're so busy counting their mint leaves that they had no time to really love God or love their neighbor. And this is something every Christian has to fight against. We all have this tendency, and I, friends, I've been a follower of Jesus now for over 30 years. And I think the longer you're in it, it can become more and more of a struggle. We, we all have to do this. This is something that C.S. Lewis explained in the screw tape letters. You've got this senior demon instructing a junior demon about how to tempt people. Look at what C.S. Lewis writes here in the screw tape letters. He says, religion can still send us the truly delicious sins. The fine flower of unholiness can grow only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt more successfully as on the very steps of the altar. See, Jesus is for hypocrites, and we need him in order for us to become whole. The first way that he does this is he helps us, he leads us out of legalism and into justice. When Jesus gets into your life, he helps you care about the poor. Verse 41 talks about that. He helps you care about the sick and the weak and the vulnerable, people like unborn children, people like refugees. When that happens, there's no room for you to worry about how many garden herb leaves your neighbor's putting in the offering plate. If you really care about that stuff, you're not going to worry about what your neighbor's putting in the plate. If you have a tendency toward being legalistic, I want to challenge you to stoke the fires of justice in your heart and see what happens to the legalism in your life. I think Jesus is saying here, it, it will go away. There's another way that Jesus helps hypocrites become whole. He leads them from selectivism to consistency. The second cluster of ideas in the text is focused on this idea of being selective about what you choose to obey or elevate in your life. This is the kind of hypocrisy that says, okay, these things that God says matter, but those things that God says, eh, they don't matter so much. That's the hypocrisy that we see on full display in verse 46. Look at this. Jesus says, whoa. Literally, that's the, <laughs> that's the word, oi, oi. It's this expression of dismay and pain and, and, and horror. Oi, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. 
couple things here. First of all, this is the only woe that's not also paralleled in Matthew's version of this text in Matthew 23. Now, by the way, if you're curious how these things relate to each other, you've got six woes in Luke, seven woes in Matthew. How does that all track out? Uh, I put together a chart. It's at the information center out in the lobby. If you want to check that out, it's just kind of listing them and, and showing how they correlate. So Matthew has, uh, or Luke has one that Matthew doesn't have. Matthew has two that Luke doesn't have. But if Luke has six total, Matthew has seven. That, <laughs> look at the chart. Um, so, so we see this is the only one that's not parallel. But second, when this expert in the law in verse 45 complains that Jesus was insulting them too, he used a very important word. The word translated insult there in verse 45 indicates that this expert attributed negative intentions to Jesus. The word insult there carries with it kind of a, you're not being a nice person, you're being a bad person. You're insulting me because you're not good. Do you see what he's doing? Do you understand? This, fair, this expert in the law is saying that Jesus' heart isn't right because of what he said. You ever know a hypocrite do that? Some conflict comes up in your life and all of a sudden they try to make it about you. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Am, 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 do I got issues to deal with? Yeah, but we're not talking about me here. Now, obviously for Jesus, that's not the case. Can you imagine the gall of saying, now Jesus, let me tell you about all the things that are wrong with you, you know. Whoa. See, we see this idea of selectivism expressed in Jesus' critique of the Pharisees' lives. The point is that in our fallenness, when someone points out the inconsistencies in our lives, we almost always assume, like this Pharisee, they've got ne- or this expert, they've got negative intentions. That's the opposite of hypocrisy or of, excuse me, of consistency. You ought to be thankful for these moments. When someone, because they love you, points this out to help you become more like Jesus, you should thank them. I know it's not easy to do in the moment, but that's what should happen. See, Jesus makes this critique of the Pharisees building tombs for the prophets, and there's some selectivism too. He says, you're building tombs for prophets your ancestors killed. He's saying, you want to claim you're honoring the prophets but you're not obeying what they said to do. You're saying, oh, yeah, the prophets are great. Now, I'm not going to do what they said because that's hard. Do you see the hypocrisy there? He says you're being inconsistent. And so Jesus critiques someone who cares more about being publicly recognized as good than actually being good. That's the fundamental inconsistency. He's saying that fastidiously obeying the parts of God's word that you like and that give you status in the community, but neglecting the parts that are hard and maybe invisible to other people, that's hypocrisy. If you want to see a great example of this, all you have to do is read a few Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strips. Here's one of my favorites. Look at this. Calvin is running with a water balloon. Sploosh hits Susie. He says, oh, what an awful thing I did. How I regret it now. I hereby resolve to change my evil ways. Oh, remorse, remorse. And she just decks him. (laughs) He says, my penitent sinner shtick needs work. (laughs) You ever do that? You ever sin boldly? And then go, oh, oh, I feel so bad. My heart is just broken. Oh, woe is me. Oy. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) You know, in the Old Testament, there's the high priestly blessing. 
you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. There's a new version of it now. It's called the social media priestly blessing. Have you seen this? (laughs) Look, may your life be as awesome as your Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest walls make it seem. (laughs) Have you seen that? (laughs) It's a beautifully subtle critique on how we want people to think better of us than we actually deserve. And at its heart, it's selectivism. It's like we want to edit our own lives. And we want everyone to see the highlight reel and nobody to see the bloopers. You do that? Because I do that. I don't want you to see the mistakes. (laughs) I just want you to see the, oh, hey, I did it right. Jesus is challenging us toward consistency here. And the way that we find wholeness and we get past selectivism is to strive for consistency in everything. And the way that we do that is to be in relationship with people who will point out the inconsistencies in love that are in our lives and thank them for that. Listen, it's it's such a challenge, but it will do immeasurably good work in your soul. When someone points out an inconsistency in your life, if you will look them in the eye and say, thank you, thank you for that. That will help me become more like Jesus. It's tough. It's hard to do. But it's, it, that's how grace works in us, to make us more like Jesus. It's by grace that you submit your whole life to God's word, even the hard parts that you don't like. There's one more way that Jesus leads us out of hypocrisy into wholeness. He, he leads us from secrecy into accountability. This third cluster of ideas is focused on the way that Jesus leads hypocrites out of hiding their sins into being accountable. Let me put this as plainly as I can. As long as you are more worried about people finding out about your secret sins than you are actually repenting of them, you will struggle with hypocrisy. As long as you're more worried about people finding out about the junk in your life than you are about actually repenting of the junk in your life, this is going to be a struggle for you. I mean, it is anyway, but it's going to be worse for you. See, one of the best expressions of this that we see is in verse 44. Jesus calls out lamentation. Woe, he says on the Pharisees, because they're full of death inside, but no one is calling them to account. The parallel in Matthew is even clearer. Look at Matthew 23, 27. Jesus says this. This is the parallel to that woe. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. By the way, I love Matthew 23 because he just keeps calling them hypocrites over and over again. It's awesome. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. What Jesus is saying here is that nobody is holding these guys accountable. They're not helping each other. They're enabling each other by their hypocrisy. You see this idea expressed again in the passage about the Pharisees building tombs for the prophets. In that context, Jesus says that they will be held accountable for all the blood of the prophets that's been spilled pretty much since creation all the way down to judgment. And Jesus is using the term prophet there a little flexibly, I think, just to talk about you know, righteous people, God's servants. The, the word translated held responsible, he says you're going to be held responsible for all their blood. It's an interesting word. Normally it means to seek, to look for something. But here in this context of accountability and justice, the word takes on a little more of a forensic edge. It's, it's, a, it's judgment language. And so it's hard to know, is he talking about the judgment in 70 AD that happened when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem? Is he, is he predicting that? Or is he referencing 
when we all stand before a great white throne and we're all judged? I don't know. Maybe both, really. It could be, there's no reason it couldn't be both. God is going to hold these men accountable for their hypocrisy. God is going to hold you accountable. And outside the grace of Jesus, you will not stand in that day. See, we, you know, these guys are choosing hypocrisy over accountability, and because of that, they're going to be judged. And I think Satan has influenced us to ignore hypocrisy and to kind of look down our nose at those who would choose accountability, and it's wrong. It's, it's backwards thinking. We should rejoice with those who see the need for accountability in their life and move to act on that. I love this quote from Rich Mullins. Look at this. Look at what Rich Mullins said. He said, I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite because nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way there, to the people who greet you there, that you don't have it all together. And you need their support. You need their direction. You need some accountability. You need some help. I love that. Jesus is claiming here that these hypocrites are standing in the door to knowing God and they're blocking the way for other people. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you're out shopping and someone's standing in the door to the store and they're talking to their friend and you're like, I'm, I'm trying, can you, I I can't, you're you're in the, and I, can you just, pants, I need pants. Can you just move, um, they're they're just standing in the doorway. Like, uh, can you do this, please? Just move, (laughs) trying to get in. See, Jesus is claiming these guys are standing in the way. They're blocking them. One application is to think about this. How many times has our hypocrisy prevented people from trusting Jesus? Let me give you a very uncomfortable prayer that might do immeasurable spiritual good in your life. You ready for this? Here we go. God, show me the areas of my life that prevent me, or should, should be people, that prevent people from believing in you. Sorry, typo, my bad. God, show me the areas of my life that prevent people from believing in you. Now, I'm warning you, if you pray that prayer, things are going to get real uncomfortable real quick. There are some dangerous prayers out there. This one, humble me. Don't pray that. Don't ask God to humble you. You'll not like it. It's it's hard. It's not fun. That's why the Bible says over and over again, humble yourself. (laughs) Because when God does it, it's not fun. See, another application here, another way that Jesus leads us out of hypocrisy into wholeness is when we choose to be accountable to someone. There's more than one way to do this. You can be, be accountable to your life group if there's something you're struggling with. You can say to your life group or your Sunday school class, like, hey, would you guys help me in this? I'm struggling in this area. And if you're not part of a life group, you can talk to Al Michael, A. Michael or at, uh, at chapelrock.org. You send him an email, he'll get in touch with you. That's one way to do it. Another way is to join a small accountability group three or four people who are going to work together, covenant together to help each other grow. Uh, that, I went through a season in my life where that was really helpful. Some guys in college, we all kind of bonded together. It was great. For me, though, what has been the most effective was one-way accountability. They were not accountable to me. I was only accountable to them. And that, that worked for me because in that group context, when they have a bad week, <laughs> it's, too, it's too easy for me to excuse the hypocrisy in my own life. I'm just being transparent here. So when my accountability brother comes in and says, oh, man, I really struggle with this this week, then the whole next week I'm thinking, yeah, he's going to let me off easy because he fought it. it. I'm just, I'm being transparent. It was, so what worked for me was one-way accountability. I made myself accountable to someone else, and they were not accountable to me, and it, it made a huge difference in my life. 
So maybe that's what you need to do too. When this is done in love and transparency, these accountability relationships can move you closer to wholeness, to real Christ-likeness in a shorter amount of time than just about anything else. And this is also the work of God's grace in your life. As God starts pointing out the stuff in you that doesn't look like Jesus, and he lets others speak for him into your life, it becomes the fuel for greater submission to Jesus, more surrender to his grace. You've probably seen the sign. It's been around for years. If you ever find a perfect church, don't go. You'll mess it up. (laughs) See, whenever I meet someone who says, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites, I respond this way. I say, then you should come because you'll fit right in. Because we all do this. Every one of us. You know? If there weren't any hypocrites in the church, there wouldn't be any people there at all. Just our pets and that squirrel from Mississippi. Church is the best place for hypocrites. Because that's where they'll meet Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can lead them out of their hypocrisy into wholeness. Jesus is for everybody. Even hypocrites. Did you get the message today? Jesus wants to lead hypocrites into wholeness. He wants to do that for you. Are you going to let him do that this morning? In just a little bit, we're going to sing a song of decision. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And while we do, I want to invite you to do uh, three things. First of all, if you're new here and and you have some questions or you're like, man, I'm still trying to figure this out, under the yellow awning, that's the next step room. And I want to encourage you to go there. So when we stand and sing together in a little bit, instead of coming forward, you can walk to the back and head to the next step room. And we have a leader there who will talk with you, uh, and, and, and you can have a conversation with them. Secondly, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning of an area of your life that has kind of been under review by God, an area of hypocrisy, and you want someone to pray with you, we've got decision counselors right down here, right down front. You can come to the front as we sing. Folks will be here ready to receive you. They'll pray with you. You can tell them, say, I'm struggling in this area. And they'll help pray that that God will move in you, put people around you to hold you accountable so that you can become more like Jesus. And third, if you know that you're not right with God and you want to follow Jesus by having him make you whole and take away your sin and you can be baptized and receive God's saving power and his spirit in your life, then you come down front too and we will be thrilled to receive you here. Let's stand together as we sing this morning.